0: You have a really interesting path to politics. I was reading that you grew up as one of nine children, um, the son of a steel mill worker from Appalachia, and that you lived on a farm or grew up with chickens. And what did that early, I think what most people would say humble, upbringing do for you in terms of give you a mindset by which you approached politics and how you led?
1: Well, I guess it was um, a humble beginning, although at the time I didn't realize it because nearly everyone else I knew um, right. lived as as we did. But um, when I was a very young child, um, um, our home burned, and um, we had no insurance or, or resources. And uh, my parents had nine children, and so... We 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 did have a chicken shack which we mm-hmm. converted into a living uh, space uh, uh, for several months until uh, my my father and my older brothers were able to take our barn and mm-hmm. convert it into a house and um, so I did grow up in those kind of circumstances. Uh, no one that I knew went to college. I was the second of the nine kids in my family to mm-hmm. actually finish high school. Wow. And um, But I was fortunate to be able to go to college, and I ended up earning two master's degrees and, um, and a Ph.D. in psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in the earlier part of my life, I attended the theological seminary for three years, mm-hmm. became a United Methodist minister, and later went into uh, working with disturbed children, Mm-hmm. And um, I, I became a psychologist and worked in community mental health and for nearly uh, 10 years at a maximum security prison with wow. mentally ill inmates. And eventually, I ended up in the House of Representatives and and then the governor. So mm-hmm. it's, been, uh, it's been an interesting journey, and uh, I've been helped by uh, a lot of wonderful people, especially teachers that I've known. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I read that you got your Ph.D. in counseling psychology in 1980, and you mentioned working as a psychologist in a correctional facility. Did that early training and background impact at all the issues that you decided to tackle while you were in office?
1: Oh, well, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I uh, Obviously, I've always been... Really concerned about health care and mm-hmm. and the things quite frankly that most members of my party the democratic party care about um, but i also uh, am interested continue to be interested in uh the criminal justice system and in criminal justice reform mm-hmm. um, and uh and uh, drug addiction and its impact upon uh so many people in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked in the prison, I worked with, with a lot of uh, younger uh, men um, who, uh, who had had very difficult lives themselves. Many of them had become addicted uh, to drugs and alcohol and um, and uh, had committed crimes and mm-hmm. ended up with long printed, uh, prison sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, so i've you know i've been concerned about those issues um i'm, I'm concerned about gender issues um uh i uh i uh, uh you know I have always tried to be accepting and tolerant of others but then i you know i uh, i found that i had a a nephew who was a transgender young person mm-hmm. and um so i i have tried to become an advocate for quite frankly. Anyone in our society that is marginalized and, um, and, in my judgment, t- t- treated uh, unjustly or unfairly. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm sure that my earlier life uh, mm-hmm. had a great deal to do with the kind of things that I had tried to focus on as a political yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and even in a
0: high level position in government, you're still accountable to your customer, the constituent. And I can only imagine how tough it must be to know that every decision you make can have enormous impacts on the everyday lives of people, both for good and for bad. And I was struck when reading about you that uh, the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 was really hard on you in terms of it keeping you up at night, frequently thinking about how you about your constituents and worried about what they might be going through. And I read a really amazing thing that you decided actually to expand Medicaid after you were so struck from reading from meeting a woman who didn't have the funds for the in-home oxygen care that she needed. Uh, can you can you talk about that story a bit and how that impacted sure. you and kind of how politics is increasingly becoming personal in this era and it's important to connect with the people that you serve.
1: Well, I I represented a a large, uh, poor Appalachian district when I was in the House of Representatives for 12 Mm -hmm. years. And I tried to stay close to my constituents because I came from them. I'm an Appalachian fellow. Uh, My family still lives in Appalachia. And um, um, one of the things that I did as a Congress member was to spend time with visiting nurses uh, in my district and i recall going uh with a visiting nurse one day to this uh little broken down mobile home way out in the country mm-hmm. it was a hot day and there was a uh a, a large obese woman sitting in a chair uh and she was literally panting uh as she was breathing trying to trying to breathe and um uh there was a gentleman um uh, leaning in the doorway, an old country guy with bib overalls. And and I assumed that he was her husband. And I said, uh, are, you, are you her husband, sir? And he said, uh, no, but I used to be. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, we were told that if we weren't married, my wife could get more, more help. And I said, how long had you been married? And he said, more than 50 years. Um, the woman was in medical distress because Mm -hmm. uh, her oxygen uh, was expired Mm -hmm. and she could not afford uh, to get her oxygen. And at that time in Ohio, Medicaid did not provide for in-home oxygen care. Uh, So I I tell you this not to be noble, but just to illustrate the, the problem. I, I called the oxygen supply company and, and uh, put some oxygen on my credit card. And um, uh, but then I became governor, right? And I had the ability to make some decisions regarding uh, what services Medicaid covered and did not cover. Uh, mm-hmm. Under federal law, there are certain uh, essential services that Medicaid must cover. But there are other services that states can choose to include in the coverage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, so I decided to um, to make uh, in home oxygen um, services uh, paid for by Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when the when the crisis hit, when the recession hit, when job loss happened, and and we were trying to uh, keep a balanced budget. Uh, I gathered one weekend in the governor 's residence with my senior staff, and we started going through the budget looking for ways that we could save money mm-hmm. because when you 're a Governor, you are required by state constitution to maintain a balanced budget right. and it 's very difficult because when the economy collapses the, the 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 resources the tax resources diminish and and the human needs increase. And, um, we were going through the list and one of my staff said, well, we could eliminate, uh, oxygen services under Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And I recalled that woman, um, mm-hmm. and that visit to her, uh, home. And I said, no, you know, we're not going to go there. Um, but that's just an example of the sorts of gut mm-hmm. wrenching experiences you sometimes have to, uh, ha- have to deal with. When you are um in a political position and you're faced with difficult circumstances mm-hmm. and yeah. um what I tried to do was to protect protect government in a way that in uh, that the, the the safety net programs
0: mm-hmm.
1: were kept in place uh until the recovery occurred
0: mhm yeah yeah and and speaking of gut wrenching issues you know.
1: Opioid abuse has been
0: a persistent problem in Ohio, and I know it was an issue that you faced in your congressional district in the 90s when you were in the House, and no doubt as governor as well. And, you know, there are so many stakeholders in the problem, and not all necessarily have the same approach or same agenda, I think. And I wanted to ask you, too, how did you work to bring together people from public health, medicine, the criminal justice system, and government to work on this issue? Because pulling all these people
1: together seems really hard. Well, it is hard, uh, but, you know, this opioid problem is not theoretical to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, A couple of years ago, I lost a a a wonderful young man to uh, to opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this problem has touched nearly every family. Uh, in in Ohio and across the country. In fact, um, um, in Ohio, even today, we're losing about 14 of our citizens per day to to drug overdose. And across the country in uh, 2017, I think CDC uh, estimates that we may have lost over 72,000 Americans um and uh so this was a problem that was especially severe in my congressional district, even before I became governor uh and uh, and there were lots of problems associated with it we had We had some unethical doctors that established the pill mills where they would literally sell prescriptions for seventy five dollars or uh a hundred dollars and um a lot of people really suffered as a result of that so that enabled getting the fbi involved and working with local law enforcement the the medical association um, and others um, to try to you know to close down these pill mills Um, but um, it it is uh, difficult uh, because people of different political persuasions have different ideas about what they think is the best approach and for too long in my judgment we have waged a so-called war on drugs that mm-hmm. has been costly and ineffective and we have emphasized punishment instead of treatment and um, I think the good news is from my point of view is after many many years um, Uh, our citizens are coming to understand that this is primarily a a medical problem, that drug addiction is a disease, and it should be dealt with through treatment rather than than punishment. And um, treatment can be costly. It can be um, frustratingly Mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, and, um, but we have a, a public health crisis on our hands. When we are losing as many citizens as we are, uh, on an ongoing basis, um, I think we should approach it as a public health crisis and provide the kinds of resources that are needed to deal with that crisis. Uh, and, uh, the, the, you know, the Congress recently uh, passed a, a fairly comprehensive bill that will provide more funding, so I think we are finally trying to deal with this problem in an appropriate manner, but for too long we um we dealt with it um primarily as a you know as a criminal act rather than mm-hmm. the result of a medical problem
0: right right completely that's a great point um and finally, I wanted to ask you, you know, retrospectively, I mean, you, you covered so many issues during your tenure as governor and in the House, and but I do wonder, is there an issue that you didn't particularly take up or champion during your time in office that, looking back, you wish you would have worked on or maybe would have worked on in a different way? Do, do you have any regrets about, about your time in office?
1: I do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, Ohio has uh a, a death penalty mm-hmm. and um and I I uh I oppose the death penalty I think it's it's um unfairly applied uh, it's costly and it's uh contrary to to our national values however um, um that was something that I was charged with with doing um uh, and, and um, uh, I wish I had been more more forceful in my condemnation of the death penalty. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I was in Congress, I, I had a roommate, a fellow congressman, who is now the governor of Washington State, mm-hmm. Governor Jay Inslee. And when Jay became governor of Washington State, although they had the death penalty, he just announced up front that there would be no executions in Washington State as long as he was governor. And I I contacted him immediately and expressed to him how proud I was of him um, for, for doing that. One of the things I tried to do, though, was scrutinize each case and there was a man who was scheduled to die within days uh while I was governor and uh as I looked at that case I decided that there were very legitimate questions regarding guilt and so I I commuted his sentence to to life in prison mm-hmm. um um in 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 the intervening years uh His brother and others have 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 collected um information and done research and just uh, within the last uh, few weeks a a a judge has um has indicated that uh this man deserves uh, a new hearing mm-hmm. so this is a man who very well may be innocent um who who was sentenced to death um but is still incarcerated and and um and uh may be determined to be uh innocent and um that that just shows the uh, the magnitude of of uh the decision making that has to take place when you are in a position of authority, especially if you're a governor because you do have those those kinds of pardoning powers and um it's you know it's uh, it's an issue that I wish I had been more more forceful in dealing with mm-hmm. um and uh so now i'm you know I'm trying to do whatever I can in that regard to to uh, see that this particular individual um is given um a new hearing and uh perhaps uh will be freed from prison uh totally.